Thank you, Garrett. I do love that song. I just love that song. God is a good, good father. So happy Father's Day. I have been waiting for several months to share a particular record with you. And Father's Day is the perfect time to share this particular record from the Gospels. It's from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and it is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, some of you are looking at me like, he's lost his mind. What happened? This is Father's Day. What was he teaching about adultery? I'm not teaching about adultery. I'm teaching about what Jesus did to help the woman caught in adultery. And I want to make a connection for you between this record and Father's Day and why I chose to teach it today. To, need, to understand that, we need to go to one of the most radical things that Jesus ever said in the Gospels. And he said a lot of things that people consider radical. But here is, I believe, one of the absolute most radical statements he ever made. It was part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it is the opening of what we today call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, that might not sound very radical to you, does it? I'm thankful that that doesn't sound radical to you. It was very radical to the Jews who heard it in the first century. They simply did not think of or speak to God in such close family terms. Jesus was introducing an entirely new relationship. Now, a Jew in the first century would consider that you know, God is the father of Israel. That, that, would, that would be an okay way to consider it. But to make it so personal, our father who is in heaven, that was unheard of at that time. And it was true when Jesus spoke it. It's what he said. It was true then. It is even more true now. Because in the Old Testament times, the Gospels are really a part of the Old Testament, in those times, God adopted Israel into his family. We have that as well, physical adoption into his family, our physical bodies adopted into his family. But we have something much greater than that. We have something that they did not have during the gospel period, that Moses did not have, that Abraham did not have. We are God's sons and daughters by birth because his Holy Spirit placed within you makes you by birth a son or daughter of God. Now, if God is our Father, and this is why I'm going to go to John 8, if God is our Father, what type of Father is He? Now, I have, over the decades now, encountered many, many people who had from mediocre to terrible fathers. And it is difficult, many times, for people of that world experience to understand God or relate to God as a father because that concept doesn't bring a warm and fuzzy to them. If that describes you, I want to tell you that this morning is a very good time for you to forgive your father. It's never too late to let go of bitterness. You can do this. You can let go of the bitterness of your past even if your earthly father is now deceased. See, it's not, forgiveness isn't about going to somebody. Forgiveness is about letting go of bitterness before God. 
And I want to encourage you, not just about this this morning, but at any time forgiveness comes up, don't be afraid to forgive. Sometimes people who I counsel with, they are literally afraid to forgive because they think it means they have to let somebody harmful back into their lives. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what forgiveness is talking about. That would be reconciliation and trust, which are two entirely different subjects in God's Word. Forgiveness is letting go of bitterness, letting go of resentment, letting go of the desire for revenge. That's what it's for. And the reason God encourages us to forgive is so that we can be set free. Forgiveness is not about the person who hurt you. Forgiveness is about you and God and about your ability to walk free and without burden in this life. And once you forgive, once you forgive your father, I cannot promise you that your relationship with your father will improve or that he will change. But at the least, you will be free to live your life more fully. That's what forgiveness brings. I could say much more on this. We have teachings on it. I cover it in Victory Through Christ. But what I would like to do is lead us all into one of two things. If you have something that you need to forgive your father for, do that. If you don't have anything to forgive your father for, then silently thank God for your father. How's that? So we can all do something. I'm going to pray, and I want you to do one of those two things. You can actually do both to offer thanks for your father or to forgive your father, to let go of the bitterness of your past. So please bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, we thank you that you are the good, good father. You are the benchmark, the gold standard of love and kindness and compassion. And right now, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we offer up and now forgive our earthly fathers. If there is any hurt that we have in our life, God, we let it go. We let the bitterness just lift off us and the weight to fall to the ground. And God, we also thank you for fathers because without them we wouldn't be here. I thank you, God, that we can move forth from this day forward free and light because of forgiveness and love. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, back to Father's Day. How can we know God as our Father? What is God like as a Father? How do we relate to Him? This is where Jesus comes in. We all know that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, that He's our Savior, that He died for our sins, that God raised Him from the dead. Less well-known and not much thought about is the role of Jesus Christ in showing us God, and in showing us in tangible, visible form what God is like and how we can relate to him. And I want to read a couple of verses from John 14, where this is the night Jesus was betrayed, by the way, and arrested. And these are the kinds of questions that he was getting from his disciples. In verse 8 of John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
In the book of Colossians, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, it says that Jesus Christ is the image of God. An image is a reflection, the exact representation of the Father. It is not a visual reflection of God. God is spirit. God is invisible. You don't have a visible reflection of God. You have a reflection of his character. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. We see Jesus in the Gospels, and when we see him, and we see how he loved, and how he spoke, and how he acted, what we are in reality seeing is how God our Father loves, loves, speaks, and acts. That's why the Gospels are one of the reasons the Gospels are so important. And that brings me to John chapter 8, and the woman caught in adultery. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you have a Bible, even if it's a digital one, Turn to the last verse of John chapter 7, which is John seven fifty three. Many of you will have something in your Bibles, uh, a notation before John seven fifty three. Depending on the Bible version you're reading, it might say something along the lines of John chapter 7, verse 53 to John 8, 11 are not in early manuscripts. Okay. So say you're reading the Gospel of John one day, we read the Gospel of John, we see that. And I have had people ask me about this. Hey, Bob, what does this mean? Why is this here? This brings me to a topic I do not often address on a Sunday. uh, And by not often, I think maybe once or twice in 30 years. But the topic is textual criticism. Don't cringe, don't cringe, it won't be technical. Criticism here does not mean... uh, insulting or speaking against something. That's not what it means. Textual criticism is the field of study that endeavors to determine the original words that were written down by God when he inspired men to write down his word. Since we believe that the Bible is God-breathed, it is important that we make sure that the words that God breathed have been faithfully handed down during the centuries before the invention of the printing press. Once the printing press was invented, it was standardized, right? Every, you can print 10 million copies of the New International Version, they all look exactly the same. That wasn't the case before we had uh, the printing press. We often, and I hear people discuss, and I've talked about it, we talk about the differences between English translations of the Bible. Okay, and there are differences between English translations of the Bible. But before you have a translation, you have to have an original source. And our original source for the New Testament are manuscripts written in the Greek language from the first century. And we are quite blessed to have over 6,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament that were copied from as early as the beginning of the second century right up until the invention of the printing press. This is far more, by the way, than any ancient text. You talk about the writings of Caesar or the writings of any of the Roman historians that we have or the writings of Aristotle or Plato. Many of those are based on only 10 to 20 manuscripts from the ancient world. We have 6,000. We have an abundance of riches when it comes to the accuracy of God's word. But whenever things are hand-copied, transcription errors can enter into the text. Sort of like when you played the 
What is that game you play? I whisper it to Danny. Telephone. I whisper it to Danny. Danny whisper it to Gary. We go down the line. It gets back to Sean, and the message is unrecognizable. Well, that isn't quite how it happened with the Bible, because the men and women who were copying the scrolls knew that they were copying the Word of God, so they endeavored to be careful, obviously. But transcription errors do enter. Almost all of these are of no significance whatsoever. They have to do with spelling or grammar, and they, they have no me- effect on meaning at all. Sort of like if I spelled Garrett. He spells it G-A-R-R-E-T-T. I could spell it G-A-R-E-T-T, G-A-R-R-E-T, G-A-R-E-T. It's all the same guy, right? Is there any difference between any of those other than I'm displaying my lack of ability to spell? We are fortunate. Because we have 6,000 manuscripts, we can compare so that we are very, very confident that the words that we have for the Greek New Testament, from which our English translations are made, we are very confident that we have the words that God originally inspired. And that is wonderful. So honest mistakes like Bob's spelling errors They are easy to recognize, and they are easy to resolve. But what about purposeful changes to the text of the New Testament? Thankfully, there are very few of those. Perhaps, I don't even know if there's a half a dozen, all told. But in John 8, we have this kind of a problem. We have 12 verses in John 8 that some scholars believe are original to the gospel, and others believe were added later from oral tradition. But it's interesting to note that even those textual critics who think it was added later, they still say, we do believe this was an actual event. We're just not sure where it fits in the Gospels. So they all agree that this actually occurred, just not where it should be put or whether it was something John actually wrote. And they differ as to why it's in some manuscripts and not others. What's going on here? What is, what is this talking about? Because next time you read the Gospel of John, you're going to see this. And now I'm going to explain it to you. That's beyond the scope of this teaching to go into the nuts and bolts of textual criticism, but I would like to say something regarding the authenticity of this record. And I'm going to look back 1,600, 1,700 years, because we're now looking back 2,000 years, right? How about the people who were looking back two to 300 years? What did they think of this section? And it's very interesting. And... One of the, you might have heard of these people, if you didn't, it's okay, a man named St. Jerome. The Pope gave St. Jerome a job, and his job was find the best Greek manuscripts and make a translation into Latin, because in the western part of the Roman Empire, they spoke Latin, in the eastern part, they spoke Greek. So the Pope wanted a definitive translation of the Bible into Latin, and he sent Jerome off to find the best manuscripts. And that's what he did. And he's doing this in the 300s. He had access to manuscripts that are no longer in existence today because of the ravages of time. And his conclusion was that these verses are original to the Gospel of John. And he was much closer to that than you and I. Another contemporary scholar to Jerome was, he was a scholar and the bishop bishop in North Africa. His name, he's come down to history as St. Augustine. You might have heard that. Uh, There's a city in Florida named for him. And uh, Augustine taught many times from these verses, and he had a very interesting perspective on them. He said some some 
copies of the New Testament do not have these verses in them. And it was his belief that those verses were removed because they looked like Jesus was going easy on adultery. And if there's one thing monks didn't like, was going easy on adultery. So that people actually took them out because they didn't like what Jesus was teaching. People still that Thomas Jefferson used to cut verses out of his Bible if he didn't like them. That doesn't like get rid of the Word of God. All it does is it wrecks a good, a good Bible. So my personal belief is that Jerome and Augustine, who had access to many and varied copies of the New Testament, no longer in existence, it is my belief that they are correct and that these verses do stand in Scripture. People, of course, are free to disagree with me, but I would like to note that there is no truth in these 12 verses that is unique to these 12 verses, okay? So the truths that it teaches are, are uh, elsewhere seen as well. So how's that for an introduction? So you're like, I thought you were going to teach the Bible, Bob. You're talking, you know, other stuff to us. But these are, these are things that might be, that you'll encounter at some time. So I want you to understand when the next time you read the Gospel of John, you see that. You say, oh, I remember. Bob said something about that. Now we can understand, we can go to John 8, and we can understand the type of father God is And we can do this by looking at how Jesus handled a very difficult situation. Because your character really shines when it's a difficult situation, right? When everything's going rosy, anybody can be, you know, can look good. When it's difficult, and this is a very difficult situation. Let's read about this. John 8, I'm going to look in verse 2, we'll start. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. This was happening at the time of one of the great Jewish feasts. So the temple was full. And you notice it says he sat down to teach them. In their culture, when you were, if if a rabbi was reading the scriptures, he would stand up. If he was teaching the scriptures, he would sit down. So the respect of standing up was done when you were reading the scriptures. So if you saw somebody standing in the temple, you knew that what they were saying was the Word of God. If they sat down, now they're explaining something. It was just an interesting way that they did it. I stand through the whole thing. Let's look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes here, they're not just copyists. We read the word scribe, we think guys who wrote things down. A scribe here was an expert in the law. That's what that meant. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And this immediately brings a question to my mind. If she was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? Adultery, some sins you commit by yourself, okay? (laughs) Adultery is not one of them. So she was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? Nowhere to be seen. They obviously let the man escape. And they have not only accused this woman publicly, but they are humiliating her. All for the sake of trying to trap Jesus. These were not nice people. Verse 5, they're continuing to say to Jesus, Now, in the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Well, he also commanded them to stone such men as well. Where's he? 
What do you, so what do you say? What do you say? They're asking Jesus to make a judgment. They're asking Jesus. They're thinking that this is a, a lose-lose situation for Jesus. They don't know Jesus very well. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have lose-lose situations. And verse 6 tells us what their intention were. They didn't announce this intention. This is God showing us what their intention was. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Amazing. This group of people throw a woman in front of her, accuse him, and say, what do you say, Jesus? And he bends down. Says, writing in the ground. Wonder what he wrote. We don't know. I might have written, these guys are morons. <laughs> but... I'm not Jesus, though, so I'm guessing he didn't write that. But there's a couple of things you can learn from this when you see what Jesus did. First, you are under no obligation to immediately respond to anyone. When Jesus was before Pilate, he never said anything. Or not Pilate, when he was before Herod, he never said a word. And second, what Jesus was doing and what we can model is don't speak until you hear from God. Don't speak until you know what God wants said in the situation. And you know, I can just imagine this crowd of scribes and Pharisees like, just, what is he doing? What is he doing? So they continued to ask him. They just like, Jesus, Jesus, did you hear? What do you have to say? Tick-tock. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is one of the absolute best responses Jesus ever gave to anybody. It is on a par with his answer of later in the Gospels when they, when they asked him about paying taxes and he says, show me the coin whose image is on it, Caesar's, Render unto Caesar the thing that, is, that are Caesar's and to God the thing that are God. Brilliant. Now, Jesus was smart, okay? Jesus had studied the word of God, right? But this kind of an answer doesn't come from high intellect. This kind of an answer comes only from God. And this is where we know that this is how Jesus operated. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus saying this. I can do nothing on my own. That's why when he was confronted, he knelt down and wrote on the ground till he knew from God what to say. How many times when we're confronted angrily as these people did, we just want to respond right away, just spit it right out. That wasn't Jesus. He was under no obligation to do that. But Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The scribes and the Pharisees were asking Jesus to render a judgment. The judgment that he will give is the judgment of God. This is the judgment of our heavenly father. This is how a good, good father confronts a difficult situation. Jesus here doesn't approve of adultery. But you can hate sin and still love the sinner. That's what our culture doesn't get. 
The fact that you don't approve of something doesn't mean you withhold love. That's the world. If you try to pursue holiness and justice without grace and mercy, you will become a Pharisee. Anybody in this room have being a Pharisee as their life's goal? Okay, no. So I want to say that again. If you pursue justice and holiness without grace and mercy, you will become a Pharisee. Jesus was the opposite of Pharisee. To Jesus, this wasn't about a point of law. This was about finding a lost sheep. That's what it was to Jesus. By the way, being sinless was not a requirement in the law to render judgment. Otherwise, nobody could have rendered judgment. Some scholars believe that Jesus was referring to the sin of adultery. Let He was without the sin of adultery cast the first stone. That may be the case, but I think God just gave Jesus the line that stunned people not only into silence, but into reflection. Let's, let's keep reading. It took them by surprise, just as the statement to render unto Caesar took the audience by surprise. And after Jesus said this, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, I'm done with you. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. They were a little wiser, and it struck their heart and say, yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah, we know, she's, we know she committed adultery, but you know what? That's not the biggest deal. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So you have to picture this. Jesus was teaching in the temple. There was a crowd there. And these people bowl their way into it with this woman they caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, I guess sneaking around corners, I guess. They bring her in, throw her in front of Jesus. And now they've all left. The woman is still there. The crowd's still there too, but they're back a ways, right? Because the scribes pushed their way in front of Jesus. And Jesus stood up. This is remarkable what he's going to do here. He stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Those are very powerful words. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. To an exposed sinner. Those were his words. In Romans 8, 1, written after the cross, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not that Jesus approved of sin. It's that he approved more of justice, holiness, grace, and mercy. That's what this is about. Again, if you try, let's remember this. If you try to pursue holiness and justice without grace and mercy, you will be a Pharisee. So what type of father is God? What do we see in Jesus about God in this particular record? When the world condemns you, our heavenly Father is ready to offer grace. God is just, but he is also merciful, loving, and compassionate. Jesus showed us 
our Heavenly Father, and how we could have, what, what kind of a relationship? What was God after with this woman? He was after restoring her. We can imitate this kind of father. We can do so to our own children, but even more than that, we can relate to God in that fashion. And I want to close with two verses from Isaiah that are going to let you know, share with you, give you a glimpse of how God loves and protects us. In Isaiah 25, 4, it says, For you, speaking of God, you, God, have been a stronghold to the poor. The poor were ruthlessly exploited in the ancient world, but God was their stronghold. A stronghold to the needy in distress. Have you ever been needy and in distress? God is your stronghold. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. This is our Father. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You, God, subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. The people who surrounded this woman were ruthless. Jesus was a shade to the hot sun that was beating down on her. That's what God is as our Father. That's what he wants to be to you. All we have to do is let him. This is how our Father treats his children. So let me pray with you. God, in Christ's name, we look to you. We thank you for the shade. We thank you for the fortress you are in our time of need. God, I ask that every day you would remind each and every one of us of your love as our Father. I pray, God, that at this very moment we can feel your presence within our soul, your warmth within our bodies, your joy bubbling up in our own bodies. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.